All right. Well, good morning, Mercy House. I am Pastor Tommy, uh, and I'm really glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to keep them out and open to Romans chapter 1 as we begin the second part um, of our Romans series, which is going to last us through to the summer. And you might be asking why Romans 9 through 16. Uh, well, we actually did Romans 1 through 8 a few springs ago. That was called Power of God. Um, and so this is Power of God part 2. Um, and your pastors think that there's incredible value in preaching every verse of Scripture. So in a lot of ways, it feels almost wrong to not finish out Romans, even though the second half presents some of the most difficult texts to teach in all of the Bible. More on that uh, later. But Romans is a great text for us to go to after Nehemiah, as it carries many themes over from the Old Testament promises that we spend a lot of time in, um, as uh, they are showcased in their New Testament fulfillments. And also teaches on themes that your pastors uh, think are really relevant and highly beneficial for all of us in this moment of our church's history, our cultural moment right now, to receive. So with that, this morning, we begin the second half of Romans. It's a letter written by Paul to a church in Rome that is divided. And they're, they're not divided like Corinth uh, was divided. And we did um, the, the, the uh, first letter of Corinthians um, two semesters ago. They had vain preferences for preachers and teachers. Um, they continued to struggle with their pagan culture that they were born out of. So that, that's not Rome's core issues. Rome's core struggle as a church, which we can infer by the nature of, and content of Paul's letter, was actually a matter of theology and doctrine. Their problems at a, as a church did not originate in how they understood one another, but how they actually understood God and the gospel, which impacted how they understood everything else around them. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of Romans, and I'll be preaching what is Paul's thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. It's his main point, it's his central argument, and if we can identify and understand what his main idea is, then the rest of Romans is going to fall into place. But if we don't get this, then the rest of the letter is not going to make any sense in the way that Paul intended it to be read and understood. So I'm not going to lie to you. Romans is one of the headier books of the Bible to study. It's Paul's magnum opus. It contains his richest, uh, most in-depth teaching on theological topics such as justification and propitiation and imputation and predestination and election and adoption. And if you don't know what any of those mean, then don't worry. We're, we're going to walk through this Together, But I want you to know ahead of time that 9 through 16, these chapters of Romans, uh, they're, they're not milk, they're not baby food. This is solid food for maturing believers. And I'm confident that our church is ready for it. So here's what I want to challenge you to do this next semester, to, to lean in, to take notes. It's going to be a helpful way for you to understand and engage with all the things that we're talking about. Engage all of your mental faculty. Get, get some extra sleep on Saturday night. Maybe make sure you have your coffee before Sunday morning. Treat this like the most important class that you are taking. Because what Paul has to say, if we can wrap our minds around it, and if the Holy Spirit reveals to us these things, in these, in these chapters lie some of the most profound and powerful truths in our existence. And I am not exaggerating. So before we jump in, let me pray one more time. Pray with me now. Father, we come before you in need of your help in order to understand your words. 
These things we're talking about, they are not naturally intuitive. They are spiritually discerned. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word. God, you are doing great things here at Mercy House. And so we continue to walk by faith and and not by sight. Show us this morning the beautiful truths that you've written thousands of years ago for us to appreciate and be in awe of today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, so where to begin? Well, Romans, like I mentioned, it's a letter written by Paul to the church at Rome. I'm not going to give you a whole history lesson right now, but here are the main things that you need to know. First, about Paul. Uh, most of us know Paul as the most unlikely convert. So he was a violent oppressor of the church who was brought to faith by Jesus himself. So if you've never read that, Acts chapter 9 is where you can read up on his conversion story. Maybe we know him as a a church planter, um, having planted the majority of the early churches that we read about in the New Testament. Others know him as a prolific writer, having written a sizable portion of the New Testament. Others remember him as a hardline apostle who never really minced his words, but called people to holiness with conviction and severity. These are all true about him. But as you read Romans, what is again considered his greatest writing his most rich and comprehensive theological work, what we realize is that Paul was one of the greatest minds to ever put pen to paper or pen to parchment. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul about Paul. He says that Paul was the greatest theologian to ever walk the face of the earth. He had the equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 21 years old. It was argued that he was the most learned man in Palestine. Had Paul not become a Christian, we would likely know of him anyway due to his superior intellect. So Paul had genius-level intellect. He had a savant-level grasp on Scripture. He was an expert philosopher and debater, but also he was a masterful communicator. Paul never ranted but he was always methodical and purposeful in his writing, which is what we see clearly in his letter to the Romans. So that's Paul. But what about the Romans and the church at Rome? Well, two interesting facts to keep in mind as as, as we think about Rome. Uh, Paul, who is a Roman citizen by birth, has actually never traveled to Rome. Now, the, the Roman Empire is incredibly vast. We're talking about two and a half million square miles across three different continents on Africa, Asia, and Europe. So it's not like unreasonable that he had never been to Rome. It's like you're an American, but you've never made it to the capital in D.C. And we read in the letter that Paul has been trying to get to Rome, but he hasn't been able to thus far. Which, if Paul has never been there, it means that Paul actually didn't plant the church in Rome. Now, this is kind of astounding because false fingerprints are virtually on all of the churches that we're reading about in the New Testament. He planted the churches in Galatia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and in Ephesus. But the church in Rome, in the capital of the world at that time, is an outlier. Well, how did the gospel get there then? This is actually really important for us to trace out. So Alden preached on Acts last week, and he mentioned Pentecost. Peter's explosive first sermon, which led uh, to the conversion of thousands of people all at once. And in the audience, as, as Peter marvels at how all these people are able to speak the same language as, at once once they receive the Holy Spirit, this is what we see, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 
through 10. This is who's in the audience. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya among the Cyrene and visitors from Rome. I think God loves a good Easter egg, doesn't he? And here's one for you. It's sitting there so nonchalantly and visitors from Rome. So among the thousands of people who hear the gospel being preached, who put their faith in God, who receive the Holy Spirit, are a few tourists from Rome. Now this is not a weekend getaway, ladies and gentlemen. These visitors from Rome are 2,213 miles away from home. We're talking about a month's journey at least. And so a church in the heart of the capital of the modern world at that time is planted when some vacationing Romans heard the gospel in Jerusalem and brought it back home with them. You know what's crazy? Do you remember the scripture passage from last week? Roman, I'm sorry, Acts 1.8. I'll read it for you again. This should be on your screen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in, uh, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Man, Rome is not the end of the earth. Alden did a great job exhorting us to continue this mission today, but it is a long, long, long way from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The very first converts were already fulfilling Jesus' vision and command on their lives. So when the gospel gets to Rome, the church is established and it grows. It becomes filled with both Jewish converts and non-Jewish or Gentile converts. Whenever you see uh, the text read Greek, it's more broadly referring to non-Jews. And this is really important as we continue on in the book of Romans, as Paul writes portions of this letter to the Jewish Christians and also to the Gentile Christians. And what that does is it exposes what could be a rift between these two people groups. And as we said earlier, it has to do with how they each understand the gospel, how they each understand God and their own place in it. The point is, is that your theology, how you understand God and the Bible, it matters greatly, Mercy House. Now, Romans opens with Paul introducing himself as an apostle who has been called to the work of preaching uh, the gospel. And he frames the letter in verse 7. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, Paul addresses the Romans with dignity and with affection. And he's reminding them that they are loved by God, that they are called or chosen, and that they are saints. And then he goes on to bless them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's about to get real deep and real heavy with them for 16 chapters, but his shepherd's heart is always on full display. He reveals his heart. He takes time for himself to attune his own mind as he prepares to have this hard conversation with the eternal realities that are true for his brothers and sisters that he's speaking to. And that frames everything that he's going to communicate. He goes on in verses 8 through 15, letting them, know that, letting them know that he's trying to get to them. Verse 11, that he actually longs to see them and, and to be with them, to be able to bless them and encourage them and strengthen them as they strive to be a church, a healthy church. And the implication is that living as a community of God's people is not easy, 
but it requires regular encouragement and strengthening for the task. That's a whole different sermon. Now, we don't have to get far before we find Paul's main thesis statement. In verses 16 through 17, we see the message of all of Paul's letter to the Romans. Read it with me now, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's primary argument, which, again, he's going to spend the next 15 chapters building a case for this and explaining the implications of this, is that the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God to save people, is that people are made right with God through faith. That's why we sang that song, I believe. It's through faith. Now, this is the word justification and what justification means. Justification is how God makes his people righteous just like he is. And what we see is that it is through belief in God, through faith in him. Now, why would this matter? Why does it matter that we get God's righteousness to begin? Well, Paul goes right into this, starting in verse 18, right after this, through chapter 2, arguing, arguing that humans are sinful, that we're not like God, who is completely good, who always does what is right and just, and who is faithful to always do that forever and ever. That's what it means for God to be righteous, always good, completely good, always doing right, always doing what is just. As we continue thinking uh, about sharing the gospel with our friends and our neighbors, this actually is not likely where we would, um, this is not the route that we would likely take we'd probably prefer to lead with something a little bit more palatable like the love of God and not the wrath of God. And there's nothing wrong with starting with the love of God. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a perfectly legitimate way to share the gospel. But that's not where Paul is going with the Romans. Paul's argument begins with our sinfulness and the wrath of God in light of that sin. He starts with the problem. And the way that Paul argues this is in our regular experience of life, in the experiences where we intuitively know what is right and what is wrong, and we actively, by our own power, do what we know is not right. So that is sin. It's not something we need to be instructed in. God would never do that. And so, that is probably the primary difference between God and man. God knows the difference between right and wrong, just as we do, yet God always chooses to do what is right. That's what it means for him to be righteous. That is not so with us. No one here or on earth, past, present, or future, can say that they have always done what they have known was right and good. And so, in our sin, We've got a serious problem. Sin isn't just a bad grade on a test and then life goes on. Sin is a pervasive sickness to the core of who we are, which leads us to death. Paul says later on in chapter 6, verse 23, that, that the wages of sin is death. 
And so going back to our previous question, why does it matter that we get God's righteousness? Because without it, we die. This is in part why Paul leads with this bad news of our sin and God's wrath, so that we can get the good news, the gospel, that God's righteousness has been made available to you and to me. Look, it doesn't matter if you start or end or sandwich in the middle the bad news of the gospel, but a gospel without an understanding of sin and God's wrath is not the gospel. We ought to remember this as as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to be witnesses of Jesus. Sharing the good news of the gospel without the bad news of the gospel is not the gospel. Paul doesn't make this mistake. And his case for our sinfulness is extensive. And like the great teacher that he is, Paul considers objections and responses all throughout the letter. In chapter 3, he responds to the potential idea that maybe the Jews are better off. That somehow, as God's chosen people, maybe they're slightly less sinful and that the bad news only applies to the Gentiles. And this is what Paul says to that in verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. I have a friend who goes to Mercy House here. I'm not going to call him out by name. I think he's here, so don't worry. But he was sharing his testimony with me, and, and he said that this verse was critical to him coming to faith. He had grown up in the church, more or less, and, and always considered himself relatively good, and so he honestly didn't really understand why he needed the gospel. But then these words cut to his heart, and in his words, this is a paraphrase, but he said to me, Tommy, I realized that I'm in the category of no, not one. <laughs> When it says, no one does good, not even one, I realize that I'm in the camp of no one, and I'm not an exception because there's not even one exception. I thought that was so beautiful. As you read on in chapter 3 from there, verses 21 through 26 ought to be highlighted, starred, underlined in your Bibles, even if you don't think you should write in your Bibles. I'm encouraging you to do so. It is Paul's expansion of his thesis statement back in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. This passage of Scripture is what led to the Great Reformation, which is arguably the reason why we're able to worship in the ways that we do today. And Martin Luther himself said of these verses that it is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible, (laughs) It's a lot of weights being put on these verses. Read them with me now. Verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you memorize one passage of scripture in all of 2023, let it be these verses, okay? We already saw how God made his righteousness available to us. We saw that it's important and necessary because without it, we are stuck in our sin and we would die. But what we see here is Paul expanding on how that practically works for us. And what you need to know is that as a Christian, this doctrine of justification, remember justification is just God making us righteous. As a Christian, the doctrine of justification is perhaps the first and the most important doctrine to grasp as you mature in your faith. Because the idea of justification answers perhaps what is the most important question, which is how are we made right with God? Nothing could be more central in our walk with God. All the theologians agree. Calvin said that the doctrine of justification is the hinge upon which everything else turns. J.I. Packer says that the doctrine of justification is like Atlas. You know the guy who holds the globe on his back? He says that it is the Atlas. I lost my space, sorry. The, the Atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on his shoulders. And what we see in verse 21 is that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. So to understand this, the law was always a way that man could be made right with God. If one follows the law perfectly, then they would be righteous. But the problem is that no one was able to do that, and no one can do that. Now, this doesn't mean that the law is useless. Paul spends chapter 7 of Romans talking about the purpose of the law, which was namely to reveal God's righteousness and our sinfulness. So the law is like like a, a standardized test of holiness, which every human fails miserably. But that's why verse 21 is such a big deal. That there's an alternative solution to our problem of sin that is apart from the law, which is impossible for us to follow. And that alternative is in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the alternative path of the law to make us right with God the law being impossible for us to follow in our sin, is through faith in Jesus Christ. All illustrations are going to fall short, but it's kind of like this. It's like if if you were born, and the first time you sinned, you incurred a debt of $500 trillion, okay? First time you did something wrong, $500 trillion. If you pay off that debt in your lifetime, you can live forever. But if you can't, you're going to have to die. Now, the law is like all the work that you would do during your life to try to accumulate money and try to pay off that debt, and oh, your your wages are fixed to one cent an hour for all of life, okay? You with me? It's an impossible task, and that's the point of the illustration. Verse 22 is God coming into this illustration and say, hey, there's another way. If you put your faith in me, I will pay this astronomical debt for you. Paul reminds the Romans and us that everyone has this debt. You see this in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then look at verse 24. And are justified 
by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What do we need to do in order to earn this right standing with God? Nothing. What penance do we pay in order to deserve God's righteousness? There is nothing we can do. We all have sinned and have fallen short. I used to have this recurring nightmare, I still sometimes do, where I'm a student in school and it's finals time and I realize that I've enrolled in a class for the whole semester that I've never been to. And I go, it's a recurring nightmare. Anyone have that nightmare? Is that like a couple of us? And I, I go to the teacher and I ask them, hey, uh, what can I do to pass this class, right? And the teacher says, there is nothing you can do. Like, there is literally, mathematically, no form of extra credit. There's no makeup work. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself right in this class. Like, what a nightmare. God's justification of us, him making us righteous, it's not something that can be earned. It's not something that we work for because there is nothing that we can do. This is not just a doctrine for the Romans. Paul reiterates this to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If in my nightmare, for whatever reason, the teacher gave me an A for the class that I forgot about, I wouldn't be able to be like, hey, check out the A that I got for this class. No, people would be like, you missed the whole class. <laughs> the only reason why you got an A or even passed it is because the teacher was being gracious toward you. It was a gift to you. See, we can't boast in our justification because it's not a result of any type of work on our part. It is a gift from God, which we receive by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the beautiful things that Paul points out for us in the passage that we're looking at this morning is that this is not a new development once Jesus entered into the world. So it's not as though plan A with the law didn't work out so well, and so now God had to whip up a plan B for us. That's not how this is going down. One of the ways that uh, Paul shows us this is actually right in the verses that we're looking at this morning, and it's another Easter egg. Maybe you missed it. Look at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1 again. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I want to zero in on that quotation. Paul is saying that the righteousness of God is revealed or using his later words in chapter 3, manifested through faith. And he's saying that this has already been communicated by God when God said the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, but this is actually way more interesting, in my opinion, than meets the eye. And here's the context for that reference. Habakkuk He's a prophet from the Old Testament. He's crying out to God, and we read this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry out for help, and you will not hear, or cry out to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, 
And why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's essentially saying, the, the world is broken, God. Why do you give me eyes to see it if you're not going to do anything about it? Are you not going to intervene? And he continues on, second prayer he sends up to God, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk understands the bad news of the gospel, the idea that no one is righteous, that no one does good. And it's not like an appalling epiphany, but Habakkuk is rightly wondering if God is perfectly just, if he's always knowing and doing good, if he is truly righteous, then why in the world is God just allowing this to happen? How is he able to just be idle? Then God responds in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God says, write this down, make it known. It's not time yet, but if it seems like I'm delaying, just be patient because I am not. And then he gives what might feel like some empty encouragement. He says, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, in context, one might interpret that as, just have faith. Just keep trusting God. Just, just wait patiently and endure. But Paul, with his incredible grasp on Scripture, is showing us that this isn't God telling his people to simply have faith. This is God communicating justification by faith alone. He's not telling them to wait for how he's going to make all wrong things right. He's spelling, them, spelling out for them how it's actually done, that righteousness is going to come through faith. Faith that doesn't just hold you over until you get the solution. It, it is the means by which you are saved. And you know what's crazy? This is how Old Testament Christians were saved, too. It worked for them. Just read uh, Hebrews 11. This is talking about all the people who had faith in the future work of Christ, and it was counted to them as righteousness. This is not a new idea at all. This has always been the plan. And here's just one instance of it hiding out in plain sight in the Old Testament. And if you're skeptical, just read on to Romans 4. Paul's prime example of this idea that God's righteousness is received by faith and not by works is Abraham, the father of all of God's people, the very first of God's people. He was the first one to be made righteous by walking in faith. He was the first one to be justified by faith. Look at Romans 4, chapter, uh, Romans 4, verse 3. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then jump down to verses 9 through 11. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. 
he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. <coughs> Excuse me. Circumcision was really important for God's people. It was the visual mark of being one of God's people. It's one of the ways that God differentiated his people from the other nations. To be circumcised meant that you were of God's people, and any reference to uncircumcised people was talking about people who were not God's people. But Paul is pointing out something incredibly profound. It wasn't the circumcision itself that made you right with God. Circumcision didn't make Abraham righteous. No, he was righteous before he was circumcised. The, the circumcision was just a sign that reflected his righteous state. We experience something similar to this today in baptism, which is the new sign of being one of God's people. In the same way, baptism is an outward symbol of what has happened internally. Baptism itself does not justify you. Like the act of dunking you under the water, that is not what is making you a Christian, but it is a sign of God's justification of us by his grace through our faith alone. Not through circumcision, not through baptism, not through any other means or any form of work, through faith alone in Christ alone. Mercy House, this is the core of the gospel. When Paul says back in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, this is the substance of that power. This is something that we hold to with unwavering joy and conviction so long as we call ourselves a believer. It's the primary way that we gospel ourselves as we remind ourselves that our own justification is through our own faith alone. That being right with God is not something that we work on, but that it's already been received completely through belief in God. And boy, do we struggle with this doctrine. We struggle to live as though it were true, even though it's the core of our faith. Let me show you what I mean. If you've ever felt like, man, I can't go to church today because I've been really struggling this week, then you're not understanding the doctrine of justification. If you've ever felt like too much of a mess that you can't read your Bible, if you've ever felt like you need to get your act together in order to get right with God, if you've ever felt indebted to God because you've had a season where you've been struggling in sin, if you've ever felt guilty because of your sin, I'm not talking about mourning your sin, but if you felt like your sin makes you less of a person, less of a Christian, you're not believing that justification is by faith alone. You're believing that justification is mostly by faith, but also with some good behavior and good works sprinkled in with that. That is not the gospel. Anytime we have feelings that something in us needs to change so that we can be right with God, that is not the gospel. Abraham was made right with God before he was circumcised. He wasn't yet one of God's people. He hadn't done anything, yet he was justified and made right with God through his faith in God. Paul makes this more explicit in Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Not when we became a little bit less sinful to God die for us or cleaned our life up a little bit to Christ die for us while we were still sinners. He doubles down on this a few verses later. Verse 10. For if while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we, shall we be saved by his life. What this means is that you don't need to do anything. There's, in fact, nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. You were his enemy before coming to faith. There's no amount of scrubbing away your past. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do to outweigh the bad. If you're a broken sinner, if you feel like you're in that camp of no one is righteous, no, not one, then the gospel is for you right here and right now in your current state of being. We received a heartbreaking anonymous prayer request this past week, which I I want to paraphrase for, for you just to share with you. They've read something like this. I've been struggling with trusting God recently. He says it'll be fine in the future, but I can't help but feel like I've already messed up too much for the future to still be fine. I've been struggling with thoughts of suicide lately, and I really want to be okay and trust God. Please pray for me. Brother or sister, we have been praying for you this week. I believe this sermon is for you. I have no idea what you've been through or what you are actively going through, but I can assure you that there is no amount of damage that you have done to yourself or to others that Jesus has not fully paid for on the cross. You are valued and precious to God, and Jesus has died to keep you alive. The first half of Romans ends in chapter 8 with these words from Paul, which every believer needs to return to when we think that our faith alone is just not enough. Look at verse, verses 33 through 39 in chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I'm going to add, including ourselves and the ways that we've messed up, are going to be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We must fight to believe this doctrine that justification is through faith alone, brothers and sisters. We must be sure to preach this doctrine. We must be part of faith communities which stand on this doctrine. Any gospel that adds works or anything else other than faith alone and Christ alone is a false gospel. And it must be rebuked when necessary, avoided if possible. And that's for the glory of God, for the work that he's done to make it even possible for us. And also for the good of our own souls. This is the heart of Romans. 
And in the second half of the book, we're going to see how it plays out for God's people of the past and how it plays out for us today. I want to close with this last piece about justification that is important for us to learn. The process of God making us righteous is called imputation. Imputation. Imputation happens when we put our faith alone and Christ alone and Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed onto us. It is credited to us. There's actually an exchange that happens, a, a double transfer. Not, not only is Jesus' righteousness imputed to us, all of our sin, all of our brokenness is imputed onto Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, it reminds us of how this great exchange was made possible. And this is why we hold this doctrine of justification so closely. Because Jesus' death was wholly sufficient as a propitiation for our sin, as, as a payment for our debt of sin. To say that we need to do anything else is a disservice to the life and the death of Jesus, who on the cross fully absorbed every ounce of our sin, and every ounce of God's wrath. If you're not a Christian, this sermon is about how to become one. <laughs> If you've acknowledged that you are in the camp of no one is righteous, no, not one, if you understand the bad news of your sin and God's wrath, then receive the good news of the gospel. Be justified, be made fully right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. And sing that song, I believe. If you want to do that this morning, then let's talk. I'm going to be in the back. I encourage you to come back and let me know where you're at, and I'd love to pray for you this morning. If you're already a Christian, if you have been justified through faith alone, rest in the work of Christ. You are enough because Christ is enough. And remember that the righteous walk by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful. We're thankful for your great love, which is shown to us that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die so that we would be able to have life in you. Father, we're thankful that we have a way to be made righteous that is apart from the law. God, thank you for this doctrine, God, that helps us understand how this all works practically. We thank you for how you have imputed the righteousness of Christ, have credited that to us, not because of anything that we have done, but through faith in you. God, we confess that we often struggle with this, but we often struggle thinking that we need to be better, that we're not enough, that our faith isn't enough, that you are mad at us because we are sinning and we, 
We can't get beyond our struggle or we're not better Christians. God, help us to experience the freedom that comes with understanding the truth of your justification of us, Lord. God, help us to um, understand these things as precursors to understanding the, the rest of Romans, Lord. I pray this morning as we take communion, as we reflect on your life and your death, <coughs> excuse me, that Lord, you, yeah, would, would help us understand the depth of your love for us, God. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the people who are in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would be working in all of our hearts, Lord, as we hear your word. Help us now to respond in worship of you for what you've done for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.